0: Spotlight On is brought to you by Light, the technology platform reimagining e-commerce for live events. You can learn more about Light at light.com forward
1: slash partnerships. That is L-Y-T-E dot com forward slash partnerships.
0: Hello, and welcome to Spotlight On. I'm your host, Lawrence Perrier. This week, the spotlight shines on Carrie Cania, publishing director at photography agency Iconic Images in London. From small-town Wisconsin to the top of the publishing world in New York City, and now living the fantasy life in London, Carrie's story is one of a music and art lover made good. I enjoyed getting to know her more throughout our conversation, and I am absolutely sure you will, too. Enjoy. I was thinking earlier about like the nature of the kind of projects that we work on individually in our careers, but that we worked on together. And they're kind of like, I think of it as like working on a movie where you are part of a team for a very specific period of time and it's sort of concentrated and intense and you meet people and you grow to be fond of them. And then the project ends and you have to be super deliberate about maintaining those connections and more so as we get older, I think. I don't know if you experience that.
1: I think that's true. But I think that once you meet like-minded individuals, no matter what area, and, and perhaps it's unique to the art. But you stay connected because, you know, at the end of the day, you want to go out you want to share music, see music, see films or read books or look. Do you know what I mean? We want to engage with art. And then I think we're, we're in a very lucky position in the sense that we made that passion a profession. Hmm. And I think you kind of you keep hold of people because of that. You keep your contacts alive. Because there will always be something to talk about, whether it's work-related or not. We're lucky that oftentimes it's work-related. But even if it's not, you want to share a new photo of somebody or there's a film I love or there's an art opening or an exhibition or if there's some new thing that, that comes across your radar. You, you want to share. You want to you want to tell people. You want to get the word out that that documentary is amazing or I just went to this exhibit. If you're in London, go see it. And that that's part of the job. And that, that we're lucky that that's part of the job. I'm, I'm not sure if, if we're working in tech or if we're working in another industry, do you share that sort of cultural passion as much as we are, are enabled to do?
0: And the other thing too is even though time goes by, Oftentimes, the groups rematerialize on other projects that you, you had no idea were going to happen, and they sort of arise out of left field, and then all of a sudden, the band's getting back together.
1: But I, I think that, that's the magic of it, and, and especially when you work with art in any form. And I, you know, I consider music and photography and books and, and film as art. You know, it's a small world, and we're all connected And a hundred percent, you know, you're going to pass, you're going to work with someone five years ago that they're going to come up again in a different project, in a different world, or, or, you know, maybe you're working with somebody on the Beatles and then suddenly they're working on the animals, or if you're working on the stones and then suddenly a Muddy Waters project comes up and that's our DNA. That's what connects us. It's the ultimate thread. And it's great to be a part of, it's great to be a part of that network.
0: So, when did your engagement with art, even as a fan or consumer, if you will, when did you first get sucked in?
1: You know, I I I think, and I, I hope it's true for everyone, but you know, as a kid, you absorb everything around you, and and maybe you don't realize it, but now looking back, you think, when did I first hear music or see visuals, or you know, and that that is my dad playing the radio. And he always had the same radio station, and it was good, good old-fashioned old school country western music. And his and his favorite TV show was Hee-Haw. So that's my that's my first memory of just hanging out with my dad. You know, I couldn't have been more than four, five, six years old, listening to Hank Williams, listening to Johnny Cash, listening, you know, and seeing Minnie Pearl. And Roy uh, and Dale on TV and experiencing his enjoyment of that culture through my eyes. And then my mother loved big band music. So on one hand, when I was with my dad, it was always country. And then when I was with my mom, it was Sinatra and Benny Goodman and Ella Fitzgerald, Louis Armstrong. It was the classic sort of big band jazz music that was always playing in the kitchen. And then, of course, that informs that sort of you know backbone to, to growing up. And then, as as the case is with a lot of people, two things happened. I started with, to want to hang out with my brothers because they were 10 years older than I was, and I want to hang out with my brothers. And one brother was into Supertramp, and the other brother was into Billy Joel. So suddenly now I'm exposed to this new genre, and then that led me to start looking and at the time Supertramp was like a new, was a new band. And then what I think it was, must have been Christmas. I don't think it was a birthday. And I wish I knew who it was, but someone gave me a cassette tape and it was KTEL records, the good old KTEL presents. And it was a best of uh, British music. Mm. And I must have been nine or 10 years old. And I just, I wore that tape out and I played that tape front and back, front and back until there was no tape left. And and I don't know how I found the station, but there was a program called Rock Over London. And uh, and that changed my life. I mean, that, you know, it was a midnight show, it was on on Sundays, and I would listen to that weekly radio program. And suddenly all this music, and it was the Smiths and the Cure, Depeche Mode, it was that early 80s wave that came over, which then, of course, led me to remembering uh, Saturday Night Live and the, the mu- musicians that they would have as guests and, and and experiencing music through Johnny Carson, the musical guests that he would have on. And then strangely, and I don't remember the dates, was the Muppet Show had Blondie. And I, I remember watching Blondie on The Muppet Show. And the, you know what I mean? So uh, you, the, the culture you consume as a kid, whether you're sitting with your parents or you're watching TV, I mean, that had such a, a massive impact to me. And then I just started to fall into it. And, and one band led me to another. So, you know, if, if a band mentioned David Bowie, suddenly it went back to all the David Bowie back catalog. Someone mentioned Roxy Music, I went back and listened to all Roxy music. And at the time you could check out records from the library.
0: That's right. right.
1: (laughs) You know, so I would go and I would try to find, and it wasn't a lot. I mean, it was a small town, but I'm probably the only one who would check out Diamond Dogs or the first 73, 74 releases.
0: You have to wonder how those records got there. I, uh, the first time I heard Abbey Road, I checked it out from the library. And in retrospect, I wonder, like, why the hell was that at the library?
1: Right. Why was Roxy Music in a small, tiny library in a tiny town in Wisconsin?
0: You know what? It ha- Because it had to be. It absolutely had to be. It, yeah. I, I, I may, I, I'm sorry. I cannot. I, I'm going to stand by that. It absolutely had to be. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and that
1: was you know, in in music when you when you start engaging in it properly, it just opens a whole can of worms because these are the long long before the days of the internet, where you had to go look for magazines, and again, you know, marching into the library with a list of magazines, whether it be Melody Maker or Ethnemy or Smash Hits, can you get me these magazines?
0: Let let me let me stop you for one second. So you said small town
1: Wisconsin, Wisconsin.
0: What was the media there? Did you have, you you know, you talked about your, your dad's radio station, but like, did you have radio? Were you able to, like, where was Rock Over London broadcast from?
1: It had to either be Chicago or the college station in Milwaukee. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And who knows? I mean, you know, it's just turning the dials. You know, you're always on FM. Yep. And if you you know you try to figure out what station is even going to come through half the time. I mean, back in the day, it wasn't always clear. And, and there was definitely the the Casey Kasem channel that played the hits of the day and whatever that music was. I don't even remember the popular music growing up because I wasn't into the popular music. You know, I remember a couple of years on when everyone was listening to Michael Jackson, and every single person I knew had Thriller. And I just, I was listening to the first album by the Beastie Boys, you know, like, so I wasn't into that at all. I wasn't into, I wasn't into the popular culture. I was into more, say, alternative culture, but I I wanted the alternatives and that that's where I gravitated.
0: When you talked about the K-Tel record, the best of like whatever it was, British music, what, what was the music that was on the tape?
1: I remember it was Bow Wow Wow. I remember early block of seagulls. I remember maybe it could have been Tears for Fears, but it was, you know, a good like ten or twelve different acts.
0: So like they're the basically the early new wave or whatever.
1: Early New Wave. Yeah. yeah. Early New Wave. and then the early new wave then brought me back to punk. So when you find somebody, you I often try to figure out well, what made them that. And then so listening to Early New Wave brought me back to back to Bolin, Bully, Bowie and uh, Roxy, and then suddenly New York Dolls hits my radar, and then that led me to television, and that led me. Do you know what I mean? Like one band would definitely lead to another.
0: Did you have a record store?
1: Milwaukee had mainstream records where we, we would line up for tickets, and if it was going to be a big sellout show, we'd be, be sleeping all night in front of the record, you know, on the sidewalk, a bunch of goopy kids. Try to get that ticket because you couldn't trust the phone because it wasn't touchdown. It was rotary dial, so <laughs> if any you zero, you're not going to get in there. So yeah, lining, it, sitting, sleeping out all night for whatever show was coming to town. We did that. It was mainstream records.
0: So Milwaukee was essentially your city, though. So you grew up in a small town, but Milwaukee was sort of the the magnet. Yeah,
1: Milwaukee was about an I'd say 45 minute drive.
0: If I remember correctly, you, you had all the you had all the venues. You had an arena. You had theaters. You had clubs. So music came through.
1: We were lucky in Milwaukee because if an act traveled and they were going to hit Chicago, it was likely they would hit Milwaukee because it's not that far. It was an easy trip. I didn't really go to arena shows because the bands I was into wasn't big enough for arenas. So it was an Oriental Theater was definitely one of the big venues there. I saw the Smiths there. I saw the Cure, Psychedelic Furs, In Excess. Howard Jones, Paul Young, anyone who would come to town.
0: Who do you remember as being particularly good live back then? I mean, I remember in Excess was phenomenal live, but who stands out for you?
1: Strangely, Brian Barry stands out. It must have been a solo tour. It must have been when he started releasing solo albums in the eighty. In the eighties, David Bowie stood out to me because I remember going to see David Bowie and being surprised that it wasn't a, a sold out show. There were definitely a lot of empty seats. I remember that. I remember that my friend that I went with who drove was really sick, was re- really not feeling well. And so she kind of had to sit there where I was up and, as you do <laughs> in, in the crowd. And I remember Bowie looked because we were on the side of the stage, probably side left. And I remember Bowie turned to us and waved. And I just <laughs> I'll never forget that. I was just like, I know he saw me. I know for a fact <laughs> We made eye contact at that point. That's know?
0: beautiful. I love that. Yeah, yeah. How communal or social was music for you? Like, were you the were you a weird kid, or like, were there other kids that were into the same stuff?
1: There was a small group of us. I mean, there was a little band of the alternative kids in school who perhaps dressed a little bit differently than everyone else, and we were all in the art room or the band room. You know, you, we were definitely the art kids in in, in class. In, in yeah. That was our crowd. And I always say march to the beat of a different drummer. But, you know, I, I remember being teased and, and picked on for, you know, having orange hair or blue hair or green hair or mohawk or tons of badges and silver shoes. And, you know what I mean? That that sort of you try to craft your look. Going to thrift stores and the Army Navy store for a trench coat and Doc Martens. And, you, you know, you try to couple together your look as best as your finances can do. and But that's when, you know, thrift stores were amazing for us because you could buy junk and jewelry and hats and and clothing and really style them in your own way. But we had a little gang and, you know, it was more, no more than six or eight of us. I mean, not that many. And there were a few clubs. I mean, I remember Milwaukee did have a few, what they called them, below 21 clubs. So they were places that we could go, and dance to the music we wanted to dance to. And that's where we started to interact with the art kids from other schools. So suddenly our little circle got a little bit bigger because of these, you know, essentially dance clubs.
0: Yeah, the realization that there's other people out there is amazing when you have like, oh, yeah. it's not just us. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. You know, they're out there because you see them in the magazines. So, you know, in, in big cities, there are going to be other people like me, but you never think, in a small town, there's anyone else, you know, who get it. There's no one else who understands this music.
0: Did you go to art school or were you studying art in college? What, what's the what's the overlap there with your aspiration and your reality?
1: <laughs> well, I mean, I think I thought it was going to be an artist. I thought it was going to be Julian Schnabel or David Sally, or I would say Warhol because obviously... But I thought I was going to be a painter. I thought I, this was I was going to be a painter. And I was, I was good in my small town, certainly. I tried to put on art shows and make the paper about my big painting and all that kind of stuff. But when you finally put a portfolio together and then suddenly you, you arrive in a big city, I, I realized very quickly I was not the best in class. And I was not to the level of these other students Who came from everywhere, from came internationally to, to the to this school. It was a very good school, and I thought, well, you know, I'm I'm relatively realistic and thought I'm not going to survive. Frankly, I'm just not. This I I felt the school wasn't really teaching me how to. I don't know if I thought this at the time. I think about it now. I don't know if the school was teaching me how to monetize what I was doing and how to protect what I was doing, but they were trying to teach me how to. Be an artist because you had to take painting and drawing and you know sculpture and performance and, and you know you had to check all the categories of art where I was more interested in well how do you do a gallery show how do you do the uh, commission split how do you market so suddenly my mind started to switch a bit more to like a, a, a curator or an art gallery owner in in a sense and that's when I just, I switched ass. And then I started really understanding the power of promotion and marketing and branding. And then I, I guess that all connects really when you think like, I, I it's almost like loving music and thinking I'm going to be the lead singer. And then you get up on stage and you're like, I can't sing a note. That's what I felt like. Like, I just have no talent for this. I mean, but and come on, you got him. into
0: the school, they let you in.
1: Uh, yeah, yeah. They did. They
0: didn't.
1: <laughs> I got in, but I, I would paint eight hours a day. And and as soon as I, I thought I'm not good at this, I stopped.
0: I understand that. I I I've, I've said on here before and in other contexts, I, I always struggled just to be mediocre with music, but I always enjoyed the hustle and the putting on shows and doing all that work. So I, I definitely understand what you're saying. Yeah.
1: Yeah and that that's exactly what happened to me is that i i enjoyed the hustle more than i enjoyed the creation of it so that's when i started going more into the hustle route and my mom was a big reader and obviously reading was a big part of my life and that's when you know i started kind of paying attention a little bit more towards publishing and um really getting into book marketing and book publishing and being more and more aware of not only classic authors like Henry Miller and, and so forth, but then the contemporary writers that were big. And that's Jay McInerney, Freddie Stanellis, Donna Tartt, and that scene, which was very New York City based. And there was literally a day I woke up and I thought, why am I in Chicago? I need to move to New York. So I packed a bag, I put, you know, I might have had, I probably had about maybe twelve hundred dollars cash, not much more than that, and bought a one-way train, t- train ticket to go to New York. I didn't tell anyone really. My mom didn't know it because I didn't want to worry her. I thought I'm going to get to New York. I'm going to, I'm going to make it. I'm going to figure it out. I'm going to hustle it. And you know, it took me a week to find an apartment to get a job, and then I called her from a payphone. And, uh, I said, yeah, I have a new address. Well, let me get a pen and paper, gave her the address. I said, that's New York. She's like, what, you moved to New York. I said, Oh yeah, I'm, I moved to New York. And <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah. All right. So let's break this down for a second. You get off the train at Penn station, I'm assuming, cause it was probably an Amtrak that you took from Chicago. You step out onto what, I guess 34th street, where do you go? Like what the fuck? What's like where do you sleep? What did you eat? What what were those first couple of days? Do you remember it all?
1: I, I had do, you been I to New York before once. Okay. A friend of mine, we, we went and had a crazy time, ran out of money, stayed up all night because we had nowhere to go. Sort of how it's it was, it was a crazy adventure. At one point when friend and I went to New York, we thought we could take the uh, subway to Atlantic City. I mean that's that's how <laughs> like little knowledge we have. <laughs> we had no idea where we were we were in New York that's all we knew I got the village voice I went to Central Park walked to Central Park with my two bags I mean I had nothing I left everything and looked at the paper and I found the cheapest hotel and it was called the Terminal Inn
0: near Port Authority
1: the Terminal Inn was on 11th Avenue and 23rd Street and I knew twenty-third Street was where the Chelsea Hotel the Chelsea. was. So I thought, how bad could that be? It was it was frightening to you the, pay point by the where, hour. <laughs> I mean there was there was a club underneath the hotel, hotel. Hotel. There was a club called the Vault. And I guess the Vault's claimed it fame is that it was that was the background to Madonna's sex book. So it was a sex club. And I thought, well, okay, I'm in New York. And uh, I don't remember how much the hotel cost. The hotel was dirt cheap. It was just a room. I slept with the lights on because I was so afraid, mainly of cockroaches. And I put uh, the chair in front of the door because I was just, it was the whole thing was frightening. I mean, talk about motivation. Suddenly, I need to get out of this situation. And I found a roommate, a roommate wanted sort of thing. And I took it. And so I lived with this aspiring drag queen who I believe went by the name of Miss Kinney, so never never share a studio apartment with a, an aspiring drag queen. There's just not enough, not enough room. I was going to say not um, enough mirror space. <laughs> no, it was tiny, and it was like Upper East Side. And but you know, I was settled. I had an address, so it's yeah. It took a week. It took a week.
0: I was I was half expecting you to say you settled in East Village or something. Oh, you went wish. right uptown. You went oh. right uptown.
1: I went right <laughs> to the first place. I mean, I didn't know uptown from. Downtown. I can tell you the first bar I remember going to in New York when I moved there was called Dick's. Well, this is a great sign. I'm living above a sex club, and I'm at a bar called Dick's. Like this is
0: <laughs> this this is
1: really what I expected New York to be.
0: Where was it? Do you remember where the bar was?
1: It was probably Lower East Side. I think it might even still be there.
0: Was it Dick Manitoba's?
1: No, it was a it was a let's say a hardcore gay bar, but it was a gay bar that had a lot of uh, pornography playing. <laughs> yes, you know, you know some, you know some bars have football, other bars show X-rated movies. So yeah,
0: whatever, it's all
1: whatever. I was in. I was. You had I was, the New York
0: experience.
1: I and I. That is why. I, I mean, that's why I left New York. One of the reasons was, you know, I moved to New York thinking it was either 1977 or 1983, and I was going to jump right into it. But I got there at the tail end of the cleanup. So I, I, we still had the, the 42nd Street bars and clubs, and we still had a few. I mean, you would go to the Meatpacking District. One, one apartment I had in New York, the, some of the restaurants wouldn't deliver to us after a certain point because they were too brightened.
0: When I first moved down there, I spent a couple of months, before I had my own place, I spent a couple of months couch surfing with a friend at the corner of Clinton and Delancey. On the Lower East Side, and I tell people when I first got down there, like there were no French restaurants, <laughs> there were there was no molecular gastronomy, there was no sushi. Maybe there was a cardboard cup of coffee place, and and now you know it's a, obviously it's a playground. And then I went from there to East 11th Street um, in the East Village, and 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 say, probably similar timing as you like Giuliani era, still doing the cleanup. I guess you could say you know Alphabet City still sketchy still could step over the occasional dead junkie, but that was, it was a tail end. It was a tail end yeah. for sure. Yeah. I gonna say yeah. it's a
1: shame, but it's a shame. Yeah. I mean,
0: I think everybody has their New York, right. And everybody has their New York was better when, or I just missed it. I think, I think that's, that's the problem is everybody moves to New York for the New York of the generation before them. Cause that's the one they grew up mythologizing. So I don't know. I, I, I have really mixed feelings about it, but it's okay. Like New York, New York's still there, and you could still find a little grime.
1: You you can, but when the Continental and CBs and once the Mars Bar and once you know once those places started to go, it's like you know. I mean, when CBGBs became a clothing store, I thought I I don't know if I can I, I don't know if I can stay here. You know, the Bowery's it's,
0: it's, bizarre. The Bowery's bizarre. Bowery's
1: bizarre now. Now, my last apartment in New York was on Clinton and Houston. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. And I, I mean, I was thrilled to finally live properly in that Lower East Side and and had those years there where I could I could really call that neighborhood my home because that's, you know, I loved it so much. And, I you know, I would go there so often. But before I moved there, I was in Hell's Kitchen. I was in Spanish Harlem. You know, I, I jumped around a little bit as you as you could back then, too, and finally moved downtown. Just because I thought, if I don't move downtown, I'll never move downtown.
0: And so what was the first gig? Was the first gig noteworthy? Was it the start of a path or was it just a job to get
1: a job? Just a job. So much just a job that it was as nine to five as they got. And at 501, I would I don't don't remember exactly how I met her, but I met who became one of my best friends in New York and a roommate for many years. We would meet at Coyote Ugly, which was off of St. Mark's, not the one on the west side, but I don't kind of the one on the east yeah, side. Yeah, First half, um,
0: right? First, First Avenue,
1: yeah. Yeah, because we would take the First Avenue bus back uptown, and that was our phone number because it was cheap. It was it was a dollar past, you know? Yeah, sure. And you could get a dollar slice of pizza and a dollar can of beer. I mean, where else can you have dinner for two bucks?
0: I went in there one night after work with a backpack on, and the, one of the girls working at the bar said to me, Nice backpack. Did your mommy pack your lunch too? I loved
1: it. I loved it. Love it, it. It. it was a, it was great. Right. <laughs> I remember I mean, it. That's you know. what you want, but that's what you want, you know. <laughs> you don't want to be open arms, you know. Yeah,
0: exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. That was like that 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 kind of stuff is like that's what you're paying for when you pay the New York rent. Is like to miss the subway when you're in a rush, to have a taxi splash rainwater on you to be insulted by some woman that's like probably only a year or two older than you working in a dive bar. Like, perfect. It was yeah. perfect. Now,
1: I mean, we live in mean, the dive bar. I mean, we'd go to the Holiday Cocktail Lounge a lot, which was also nearby. They had a heavy pour, you know? I mean, that was, I mean, those drinks were strong. And the booths, I remember the booths in the back of Holiday were covered in duct tape to the point where you would stick to it. If you got up and you, you could stick to the seat, there was so much tape on those. You know, you'd see the the you know the nodding offs on some of the patrons, and and um, yeah, I missed the holiday and and that sort of that dive bar mentality. Yeah, not many, not many survive.
0: Good old man bar. That's, that's how I think of them. Yeah, open at like eight a.m. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, so tell me about the career path. Publishing it's such a big part of. Your career and the beginning of your career, for sure. Tell me about that.
1: So the the, kind of the job I had, it was a nothing job. But one day, a woman that I worked with got a package from Random House. And I said, who do you know at Random House? Like She's like, oh, my, my husband's best friend, Michael, works at Random House. And I said, can you introduce me to Michael? And she said, well, he's going to be at our wedding. Fantastic. So a couple of weeks later, I went to this woman's wedding. And so I made a beeline to Michael introduced myself and said, you know, will you hire me? Will you, I will do anything. I'll work 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Will you give me a chance? And he looked at me and he said, I'm hiring an assistant. Mm. So I don't know if the star is aligned. And he hired me as his assistant. And I worked with him until the day I left New York. So over probably 15 years, I worked with him. In, in various capacities. And he's still one of my best friends. We talk and text and email all the time. But yeah, I just got really, really lucky. Got really lucky. It was a chance.
0: And so if you if you start as an assistant, where do you end?
1: You start as an assistant. And then in my case, I worked as hard as I could. I did 24 hours, seven days a week. Because I, I wanted to prove that I could do it. I wasn't going to be an assistant all my life. I wanted to be... Out of it, And that, that is where I ended. So I when I ended, when I left New York, I was the publisher. So I made it to the point where I wanted to be, where I was, I had a brilliant job. I was very supported. I had a great staff. I was publishing amazing, but I mean, it was every single thing I wanted. You know, I had the big office, big sale. I mean, I had everything. And that's when it just kind of clicked in my head thinking Okay. This all happened. This escalated quickly. Now, now, now what do I do? You know, I don't want to go any further than this because up there looks, looks like a lot of meetings and Excel sheets and budgets. And that's not really what I want to do. I didn't, I didn't want to be CEO. I wanted to create. And I think sometimes when you're at a corporation and it was, it's a big, it was a big corporation. When you're at a corporation, the higher you go, the less you touch what you're making.
0: All right. So what was the imprint you were publisher for?
1: I was a, a publisher at HarperCollins, and I ran five divisions. So I ran Harper perennial, Harper paperbacks, it books, which was the uh, entertainment line, Harper design, which was a high end photography books. And then some of the, the calendar program, the Simpsons, Futurama. So some of these sort of Brandon entertainment, the, movie tie-ins. Yeah, I was I was over overseeing over three hundred and seventy books a year. I said more than one a day. It was it was fantastic. It was absolutely fantastic. The,
0: do me a favor, for the for my benefit as well as the benefit of our listeners, what's the what's the publisher do? A
1: publisher oversees the overall imprints output and that is from everything from what title are we publishing? to the how much are we going to pay for it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Down to the jacket design, the marketing, the editors brought it to me, the publicity campaign, the sales channel. So that is what a publisher does is uh, we watch over the entire operation of that imprint. So all of the books came through me at some point.
0: Does the publisher put an aesthetic stamp on their imprint?
1: I think good ones can. I think that clever ones can sort of get away with it it was very clear what were my books, what were the books that, okay, these are, this is our list that we're making. And the other ones are the other books. So we had like a little tribe of writers. We had a little bit of a zeitgeisty thing. We had a brand, we had parties, we had logos, we had funny hat campaigns. We had real cleverness sometimes to what we were doing that you know, I wanted to reflect and, and be inspired by Grove and by vintage and vintage originals. So we were taking what inspired all of us who were working. And like, let's recreate it. Let's publish new writers, alternative writers, exciting writers. Let's make our stand. If they're letting us do this, let's do it. Let's Let's go out and publish short stories or poetry or debut novels. A lot of publishers kind of steer away from that. Because it's not profitable, it's not always sustainable. So as long as we could make it sustainable, we were we were pushing it a little bit, and we had a great time doing it, and we had a real ethos in, in the sense that we would do events at KGB. I mean, we were starting to do events in bars, and and that, you know what I mean, like because we didn't want to be restricted to you know a chain store mentality, because that's not ultimately. We kept thinking, who's reading it? Who's going to buy it? Who's our consumer, and then okay, where are they? Where are these people going? And let's go there.
0: Just level set for me a little bit before we move away from this. And, and will you will you place this in time for me and tell me what was going on in the greater publishing world and industry? And like what era and what changes were you navigating, or were you were you sort of immune from the outside forces?
1: It's a really good question. I mean, I I don't think we weren't immune to the outside because we had to ultimately be a profitable imprint. So what we did, we had to sustain in a sense of the big sometimes paid for the small. And maybe they didn't know it. But we we had tremendously big, massive, award-winning, amazing writers on our list. And because I I looked after the paperback imprint, I was very gifted with A Tree Grows in Brooklyn, Brave New World, To Kill a Mockingbird. Their eyes were watching God. So I had this sort of stable of big, heavy hitters that I knew every year I was going to sell, sell, sell without lifting a finger. But what if we do a new edition? What if we do a smaller edition? What if we do a different cover on that one? You know, So we also kind of played around a bit with some of the backlist, well, why don't we reissue? Why don't we put new graphic covers on it or new photographs? You know what I mean. So we kept looking at ways that we could rebrand and revitalize classic books like *The Bell Jar*, and, and we, we had exciting classics as well as these exciting new writers. I mean, we once did a series of short stories by, I think, I was a Herman Melville, Dostoevsky, and a few uh, Oscar Wilde. Where in the back of each classic, I put a short story from someone you've never read before, a debut short writer, to sort of match that. That reader was like, if you love Herman Melville, you might love this new writer.
0: You were the algorithm.
1: (laughs) Yeah, well, I mean, it was you know, and it wasn't. It was it was cost effective as well in a sense of like really trying to lead the reader to experiment with their reading to, to try something new and to give a new writer a chance really. And, and cause we didn't have a big splashy marketing campaign. We weren't even the biggest splashiest marketing campaigns in, in book publishing from the Anne Rice down to the Barbara King solver or Michael Chabon. it It wasn't movie budget level. It's not new album release level. I mean, we were all still working, you know, on a very, very small budget. You know, and that budget gets eaten away with because you got to pay for floor displays and you got to pay for this and you got to pay for the placement and you got to pay for a a galley and then you got to mail the galley and then you got to buy the envelopes and then, well, like all that stuff would just eat away at that little budget. And so the money left over, we kept putting into, you know, I'm going to make badges. You know, I'm going to make tote bags. I'm going to figure out what they're doing in the music industry and start doing that for books. People either thought it was crazy or that was kind of a cool thing.
0: You were the punk rock publisher.
1: Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, it worked.
0: One of the one of the reissues or or new editions that I thought was so clever and and got me to purchase it at least once for myself and at least once for other people was the addition of this had to be maybe mid late nineties of Animal Farm with illustrations by Ralph Steadman. So beautiful. So perfect. Like mm-hmm. the curation of that was so well done, but the, the illustrations were just spot on. Incredible.
1: That's exactly what we were trying to do. We we were trying to merge it a bit and trying to walk between the both worlds and, and jackets and covers have oh. always been very important to me. And also it's the allowing The the book jacket designers freedom. I mean, there are there were cases, and it was my favorite meeting of the week was the the cover meeting, which was like a two or three hour, but it was fantastic, and you could just talk design. And there were some where I I said, you know, I'm I'm sorry, but I need I need the author name bigger. I need a quote. I need a banner. I need you know. I had to put all these things. You know, that just, you know, I could see the art director like just getting smaller and smaller and smaller because <laughs> I would, but then I would, there would be books. I said, whatever you want to do, this is yours. I'm not going to, you don't want to put title, you don't want to put type on it, you don't want to, whatever you want to do. And, and so as long as we kind of allowed that freedom of creativity, you're going to get the best out of people.
0: Are the book designers at the level you were at, are the book designers staff?
1: Yeah. They were staff. We did freelance occasionally. So, you know, you would go through the list, you would try to match up who's going to be, you know, and the designers would say, oh, I want that one. I want that one. And then there were always going to be other ones where, oh, I know who would be perfect for this, or I'm going to freelance this out because this is a perfect match for so-and-so. So it's a little bit of both. You
0: know? So, I mean, being sort of, I guess I can say it if you can't, like sort of at at, at a top echelon, at a major house. That's heady stuff. Like New York publishing, cranking out 370 books a year. Like
1: that's I made that's it. That's the shit. No, right? Middle Times Square, throwing up my gap. Yep.
0: All right. So yeah.
1: then what? I got to that point and I just thought I I don't know what I want to do next. I don't I couldn't really figure that out in my head. And then I thought, well, if I don't move now, I'll never do it. And I will sit there my dying day, and I will think, "Ah, oh, I never moved to London." I mean, when you grow up, you've got one or two opportunities to jump. You know, you you jump once when you're young, kind of foolish, kind of stupid. You you buy a one way ticket and you land up in a sleazy hotel, and you can do that when you're young because you you just you can live with the eviction notice when you're a kid, and you can kind of scramble and figure out how to keep the lights on. And I remember one time, you have no money. There was an outlet in the hallway of the building I was in. So I had an extension cord going (laughs) from the hallway, you know, but I needed, I didn't have, I couldn't pay the lights. So I couldn't, I needed the alarm clock at the very least to get make sure I got to work, if if, if only then the radio to keep me company. I mean, it was, it got to that level at, at points in my life, which is great that I had that. Not great at the time, but great retrospectively. So that's the first time you can jump, and then I, I I think the second time you can jump is when you're a little bit more secure, a little bit more confident. You've got a couple of dollars in the bank, you've got a good resume, and I just decided, you know what, I'm gonna I'm gonna try it again. Can I do that again? Can I pack it up and buy a one way ticket? And this time, instead of a train, I bought a, a one way ticket to London.
0: To go by boat or plane?
1: You know, I went by plane. I would love to have done the boat. I've never done it. I know people who have had. And it sounds amazing. But yeah, I took a one-way ticket on that airplane and landed at Heathrow. They thought, okay, here we go. Let's do it.
0: So here's the conundrum. We've, we've got about 10 minutes left, but I feel like that's less than a minute a year. So there's two things that I need to know about. One is being a bookstore proprietor because that's something we share in common. And I had that in my past and your current gig, because from, again, from afar, what it looks like is it's every possible strand came together. Yeah. To what you're doing now.
1: In my job in New York, I would come to London quite frequently. And during one visit, I, I, found a book I wanted to publish. I read the first page and I thought, I'm going to buy this. This is the greatest thing I've ever read in my life. Made an offer and I said, but I will only buy it if I can have dinner with him tonight. And so the dinner was set and I met this man named Sebastian Horsley, who was a one-off. And absolutely, it's even hard to describe. He was a living, walking piece of art. He's a dandy. And that was his profession. So he was a tall man and he, he always wore a big top hat platinum shoes I and mean, he was just visually like you just don't you can't even comprehend what this guy looked like and then suddenly he was a writer he was an artist he was articulate he was he had everything and I just kind of I fell in love of him and we just started to hang out and we became really good spent Christmas together like we became very close friends to the point where if I was in New York he'd call me on Thursday and say, can we have, can you come here for dinner Saturday? Brian Barry's coming, blah, 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 I would get on a plane in New York on Friday night, fly to London, land on Saturday, have dinner with this crazy crew of people, and then fly back on Sunday and be back in the office on London. And people were like, what are you, you know, are you mad? I used to do
0: that for concerts. I'd go to London, leave on a Thursday or a Friday, see a show. Friday, Saturday, or Saturday, Sunday, and
1: Monday morning. Be back. That's exactly what it was. I mean, I got, I was so frequent, like I knew the the crew on the air because I would always take the same flights. And then, of course, he up and 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 ODs, so he died of a heroin overdose. I I did tell him I was finally going to move to London, so he did know that. But then he, you know, he OD, and I moved anyway. And he introduced me to the circle in London that eventually would lead to where I am now in a sense of when I was in New York, I was publishing a book and then I met this guy. And then the photography thing came because he a friend of mine asked, can you just help me sort out this publishing program at this photography company that I'm running? And I said, yeah, yeah, no, these, these are horrible. I can sort this out. So one day a week suddenly turned into a full-time job. And that's, you know, as the photography company got bigger and bigger and bigger, that everything that I was doing just got bigger and bigger and bigger because I was kind of helping it grow. Which now, I you know, I I do curation and I do the writing. I do you know, I do, I'm involved in so many different aspects of the business. But yeah, it goes back to the original question of that that the people you connect with in your career, no matter what part or what stage, you if it's meant to be, you will cross their paths again. And this was this, this crossed my path again. And he said, oh, help, help me out. is said, I'll help you out. So it kind of all comes back full circle. I mean, I'm really lucky. I mean, when you work in the arts, it. I mean, I feel lucky every day, no matter how much work or stress or the to-do list or the dramas and all of that nonsense that we deal with. I mean, I look at photos all day. I look at photos that no one's ever seen. Or maybe they saw it once and they're buried in a, in a box of negatives. And then I pull out Elton John on stage from 1974, David Bowie on stage. You're, you're pulling out these sort of moments in time. I mean, we've, we've got millions of images that we oversee. And, and my job is to kind of swim through it and pull up the Susie Quattro and then it's introducing the staff as well. You know, as you do, as you get older, you start introducing people to these people you know, introducing kids to Roxy music. Like how do you not know everything about Roxy music? So that's, that's kind of the joy of it. And, and it really, it really is a joy.
0: I've said it before, but like, there's, there's nonsense everywhere you work, right? I think everybody goes to work and deals with some level of, of nonsense And I say to people, like, at least we're not selling insurance (laughs) because there's just as much bullshit in that office. So like, you know, so
1: what would you rather be doing?
0: Yeah, Making the world safe for rock and roll.
1: Yeah. I mean, wouldn't you just rather work in rock and roll and celebrity and and movies? I mean, when when things go wrong here or, you know, something happens, I said, whatever, like, we'll fix it. We're not brain surgeons. We're not you scrambling for a hospital room. I mean, when you put things in perspective, we shift something wrong to somebody, whatever. Life <laughs> goes on. You just fix it. Do your best to fix it. Do your best not to do it again.
0: Yeah. Well, thank you.
1: You're welcome. I hope this was interesting. Oh,
0: forget it. It's phenomenal. It's phenomenal.
1: Oh, I don't know about phenomenal, but...
0: Oh, you'll you see. Know. You'll see. By the way, our editor has... He'll, he, he If he could make a babbling fool like me look good, it's... <laughs> You're giving him gold. On
1: all in the editing. It's all in the editing. <laughs> somebody, there was somebody tonight and recently was talking about curation and, and why he said, you can't show somebody 3,000 photos of Elton John and think they're going to pick something from 3,000. You have to show them 30 amazing images. Then they'll pick something. Then they'll buy.
0: Yeah, and they can almost not make a bad choice at that point, right?
1: Like- exactly. I think curation—you know—we just don't talk enough about and, and the importance of somebody helping somebody make a choice, and that's what curation is. And that's an, also a very different thing in London compared to America. Is that I go to a grocery store, there's like five different cereals. If I go to America, there's like 500 cereals. I, I think that you you have to you have to deal with the paradox of choice.
0: I mean, there's probably 30 different kinds of Cheerios. (laughs) Not here. Crazy. Not here. Good for you, man. Carrie, have a great weekend. You as well. Thank you so much, Carrie Kenya and everyone at Iconic Images. Thank you, Aunt Taylor and the team at Light. And as always, thank you for listening to Spotlight On. Get and share all of our past episodes Write a review and even send us a message all through our website, spotlightonpodcast.com. If you like what we're up to here, please leave us a review on Spotify, Apple, or wherever in God's name you get your podcasts from. Join us again next week. In the meantime, be safe and stay in touch. Love to